Well, good morning to each of you. Greetings. And uh, thankful to have my, my Uncle Stephen and his family here this morning. Um, welcome. Well, please, if you would, um, return with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. We've been considering this portion uh, of God's Word now for a little over a year. And there's been, uh, this is now the 12th sermon in this series. And today we continue on within chapter 4. The last two messages were regarding uh, verses 1 through 5 of of Micah 4. And were were really focused on the promise uh, of a coming kingdom. A kingdom uh, that is at the end of days. We looked at the, the reign and the rule of this coming king, that, uh, that it would be global. The, the authority of this king would, would be absolute, and so much so that the peace which will be established by this king would be totally unprecedented uh, within history. And today we're going to continue that discourse uh, of the coming kingdom and, and the coming king. And, and we're going to consider the following. We're going to consider the citizens of the kingdom. We're going to consider the king of the kingdom. And then the extent of the kingdom. And uh, we're going to see these, these aspects in verses 6 through 8 of Micah 4. And I've titled this, The Lame, Outcast, and Afflicted. So let's begin reading... Um, from chapter 3 of Micah, verse 9, and then we'll read through 4, 8. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us about His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty, distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, Hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Holy Lord, before you we come and we say thank you, gracious Lord, for your holy scripture, for your word, which you have given, which you've preserved, which you have made so available to us here at this moment, in this place, at this time, that you've given to us copies in our own language, multiple copies, multiple 
resources regarding your word. But thank you, Father, that you've given it to us. And I ask that you would bless your word, that it would go forth, that I would speak it truly, that I would speak it accurately, that uh, those who hear would, uh, would discern in, in, in line with and in accordance with your spirit, that uh, your spirit would take this word and, um, and bring forth much fruit that, uh, that your name would be glorified. Lord, give us your grace today and bless your word, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we read here at the beginning of verse 6, these three words, in that day. And for Micah's listeners, this was, again, to give them a designated period, a designated time in which that which he has to, t- to tell them is going to take place um, in what, when the fulfillment would follow in that day. And remember, that's basically how this chapter began. It will come about in the last days. Um, and, and as we discussed the, the challenges that were presented there, in that phrase, in the last days, we're, we're confronted with, with eschatology. What do we believe uh, about the last days? There, there's challenges there. There's, there's interpretive difficulties with which we have to wrestle. And, and we must, be, um, must we be careful. We must be consistent in how we apply biblical uh, interpretations, hermeneutics, um, so that we can determine and, and understand um, the actual meaning of the text, and on also an appropriate application for the text. But, but quite simply, if we were to break it down, we understand that these last days, they began at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This man who divides history left and right. So, why this differentiation now between in the last days and in that day? There's a movement from the plural to the singular, from the generic, the last days, to very much the specific, in that day. It's like you're talking to, to your friend and you say, well, it's going to be sometime at the end of the month. But, but then later on, you pull out the calendar and you say, it's going to be that day, right there. There's a movement here, from plural to single, from generic to specific. Um, is, it, is it another way of, of saying the same thing? A different perspective, perhaps, on this same time period, the same series of events, or, or, or what? Is this, is, this a, is this a funneling down of history to its culmination? Or is this simply descriptive of, of this period of time in, in that day? Or maybe it's both. Well, regardless... I think we can definitively say two things. One, that that day is within the last days. It's, in that, it's like that mathematical formula or equation that has that, that open bird's mouth with the straight line underneath. It's either less than or equal to. Okay, it, it's, it's at least that. Um, and that's one. And the second thing is, that God has a timeline. Okay? In that day, there will be an end. That which we know and see and experience now, it will not go on forever. There will be an end. There will be an end. So there is within the plan of God a specificity to which He attends. God is very specific. And um, there is very much a, a linear and a progressive nature and a defined end to history. We see patterns. We see waves of the same thing rising up and going down uh, within history. But it's very much going to a definitive end. There's a, there's a straight arc there. And at the appropriate time... In that arc, along that track, along the road, certain events are set to occur that bring about the fulfillment of His plan and His purpose. So, so we, can have, we can have full assurance that when the text says, 
in that day, declares the Lord, that not only does the, the God who is declaring this, the Lord who is declaring this, not only does this God who exists outside of space and time, not only does he have a schedule and a timeline, but um, what is about to be spoken will indeed come to pass. It will come about, and guess what? It will come about at the right time on the calendar. In that day. Well, let's read verses 6 and part of verse 7 again. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And here we're looking at the citizens of the kingdom. And isn't that extraordinary right here? That's quite extraordinary. Micah's telling us that, that this coming kingdom, this kingdom to what we read earlier, to all the peoples, all the nations will flock. That kingdom to which all these people are, are coming, it's going to be elevated above other kingdoms. And, and from this kingdom, you know, the word of the Lord is going forth, but it's going to be comprised of the lame, the outcast, and the afflicted. That is truly remarkable right there. Because this, the way that these citizenry, the way that, is, that they're described, that they're, that they're put forward, it is the absolute opposite of the kind of populace that any nation on earth wants. Isn't that? Isn't that so? None of the nations of this world desire these types of people to be their citizens. Do you remember Daniel? Yeah, the prophet Daniel. Well, whenever, um, whenever this first and near-term fulfillment uh, of what we read in uh, Micah chapter 3, verse 12, that, that plowing of Zion and, and the, the heaping of rubble into Jerusalem, when that near-term fulfillment happened um, with the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 598, that was, that was about a hundred years after Micah wrote this. Well, at that time, Daniel was taken captive. And we can read some of this in Second Kings, and we can read just a little bit here in the first part of Daniel. And... Uh, if you want to, you can turn there. If not, you could listen. But I'm going to read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where it's written, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Get this. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. <clears throat> so, if you want a picture of what the, the kind of people, the kind of servants, the kind of citizens that a nation of this world wants, it's this right here. They brought in royalty. They brought in the elite. And they had some very strict requirements here. Youths, they wanted the young they didn't want the old. They wanted those who had lots of life left in them. They wanted the young. They wanted no defects. Okay? No maladies, no deformities, no nothing. No defect. They had to be good looking. You couldn't just be young and be healthy. You had to be pretty. Okay? You had to be smart. You can't be ditzy. I'm sorry. You may look good, but you've got to be intelligent. You've got to be intelligent and know how to use that intelligent, wise and discerning, and, and in all branches. So they had 
multiple ways in which they would categorize these things with their wisdom and their discernment and their intelligence. Then they would have to be, to be able and willing to serve. Have you known some people that were smart but not willing to serve? Okay, and then it goes even further. They have to be uh, able to be taught and, and learn literature and language. So these guys are the cream of the crop right here. And that is who the kingdoms of this world want as their citizens. But that is not what we see in Micah 4. That is not the type of citizens within this kingdom. The Babylonians, they left these kind of people in the land. They left the poorest in the land. But um, those that they wanted to run their government were in premier condition. The best. The best of the best with honors. But that's not what we find here. No, what we read here in Micah is, is similar to, but I think a little different, it's similar to the band of misfits that came to David when he was fleeing Saul. Those who were in distress, those who were in debt, and those who were discontented fled to him. But to me, that, even that doesn't quite reach the level to what's presented here. And those within these categories of lame, of outcast, of afflicted, they really bring to mind the most helpless, the most undesired, the most diseased. That's what it brings to mind. And here's a few illustrations. Uh, kids, you, you might, um, this might help you. It might help some of us older ones as well. For, for think about lameness. You know, if, if a horse breaks its leg, in, in the Western films, what happens? The cowboy just pulls his pistol out and shoots it right in the head. Well, that's fairly common, actually, because it's, it's difficult for a, le- a horse with a broken leg for that leg to heal properly. And also, you have the added difficulty of blood flow. See, that, the hoof of a, of a horse, that center portion, the frog... It helps to return the blood flow back up the leg to the rest of the body. But it has to be walking. It has to be moving in order for that to work properly. If the leg's broken, then the blood is not going to flow well. So a lame horse is basically destined for death. Outcast. Well, if you have a sheep... A single sheep that's within a flock and it wanders off by itself. Or perhaps the flock ostracizes this thing and he's all by himself. At the very least, this sheep's going to be unhealthy. It's going to be weak. It's going to be sickly. It's not going to get the best food. It's not going to get the most water. It's not going to be protected. And it's on the fast track to death, usually. That's an outcast. What about this afflicted thing? Well, the way that I looked at it was like an infestation of worms within an animal. He's just completely wormy. The, just the totality of it, either an organ system or whether the whole body is septic. There's, there's just this widespread illness or disease that's throughout it. Maybe, maybe you can think of, of, a, of a cancer that's just terminal it's spread everywhere well it it encompasses the totality of the being and so much so that not only does it does it break off the ability the body's ability to fight it but oftentimes it breaks the, the the creature's will to live so there's a widespread nature to this and there's a, a breaking to it as well and all three of these categories here they represent someone who is who is on the verge of death, just a step away from death. And those who fall within these categories of lame, outcast, afflicted, they would fall within that phrase which was propagated in the Third Reich, Lebens und Wertes Leben. Life unworthy of life. 
That's where they fall. And we know there that that entire group of undesirables was very much intentionally and systematically removed. They were eliminated from society. They were considered as lesser beings, as lower life forms, as less than human, as life unworthy of life. It's different from us. Let's kill it. Let's kill it. Let me take just a second here and pause. For clarity's sake, the picture that's being painted here, the message that's being presented in Micah 4, is absolutely and unequivocally not propagating critical theory or social justice. It is not portraying that, that the gospel is all about human liberation. It is not portraying that some particular set of humanity, the lame, the outcast, and the afflicted, they are worthy of life and those who are oppressing them are not worthy of life. See, that reverses it. No. What, what that message is the same message of the French Revolution. Down with the aristocracy and up with the guillotine. So let's be very clear here that, that even though we have a, a definitive groups that are, that are literally in need, that are in terrible need, in awful condition, and perhaps being sinned against and oppressed, literally, this is not portraying that type of, of, of thing that's being propagated today. So let's be very clear about that. But this type of thinking, this, this life unworthy of life, this type of worldview that says they're really not worth any effort placed into. They're really not worth any money or, or time spent. They're not worthy of life. That type of unbiblical categorization, I think, always results in mass murder. And whether it's an intentional abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, genocide, or whether it's simply death by neglect, death by abuse, death by apathy. What that is, is the representation of satanic dehumanization. Satan hates the image of God. He hates all things about God. And so he hates man who is made in the image of God. This is the degradation of the Imago Dei. This is a redefining of man. And in this worldview, men are no longer created equal. No. Some are allowed life and liberty. But others are subjugated to enslavement and and death. You want to know where that worldview leads? It leads to the grave. For some. No. No. A Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective says that God created man in His image. In His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created him. A biblical worldview says that God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. That's what a biblical worldview says. And Micah here, he is upholding that very statement that's found in the book of Genesis. Micah is affirming that that God declares that not only are the lame, the outcast, and the afflicted, not only are they also made in my image, but these are the ones who I will esteem. I will honor these, God is saying. Almost as if, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ, this man who, who divides history and He inaugurates the last days, this man, He turns everything on its head. Or maybe, maybe it's been upside down for thousands of years. Yes. But I think that this text, I think it takes it, the, this idea that, uh, of the worth of all mankind, I think it takes it even further I will make the lame a remnant. 
Now, this is the second time that Micah has mentioned this word remnant in his book. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. So you see, also see assembling and gathering there. And we, we talked about that. But, but uh, we have it again here. And then also in chapter 5, we're going to see it two or three more times. And then finally again in chapter 7, we're going to see this, this remnant. Well, built into this idea of remnant, um, a piece or a portion remaining, built into that idea, I think, is the idea of lameness. And consider with me here, regarding this this nation of Israel, uh, often the phrase is used to describe the nation, uh, the faithful portion, as as the remnant of the flock, the remnant of of Judah, the remnant of of Israel, the remnant of Jacob. Those those phrases are used to describe uh, this people of God. Well, why is that significant? Well... Jacob really was the one through whom God used to make the nation of Israel a nation of shepherds. It was really through Jacob that that happened. And and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And it was changed when Jacob asked for a blessing. Hold your finger in Micah and turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, and we're going to begin in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated when he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, no longer uh, shall your name be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he says, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face. Yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. So what was the blessing God gave to Jacob? A different name and a limp. Hmm. He touched his hip socket and he limped. Perhaps from then on. Perhaps. So, so every time I think that there's this mention of the remnant of Jacob, or the remnant of Israel, the remnant of the flock, I think that there's automatically now a connection, a societal connotation of the blessing of God. The blessing of God that includes a limp. The blessing of God of malady, of deformity, of inability is given to the remnant. And don't forget that it's a blessing. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it doesn't look that way. But in God's economy, in this this upside down, this inverted kingdom, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life's been preserved. You see, that's an inversion. To see God and live. God says, no man can see my face and live. But if you've seen God and lived, that's inverted. It's not how it is. But God has allowed it. He's blessed you. He's preserved you. Well, some of you may be asking, well, well, what about the fall here? Isn't it true that that God created all things very good, but but when sin entered in, now this this whole creation is contaminated? What about that? Or, Or what about... Um, what about the prohibition to the priesthood that says, no, you can't approach my altar if you're physically or mentally deformed, if you're deficient in some way. You can't, you can't offer a sacrifice. What about that? Or, or maybe, maybe you're going to ask the same questions that the disciples asked 
Lord, who, who sinned? This man or his parents? Well, each of those questions, they, they do deal with the reality of inherited sin. They deal with the reality of volitional sin, of, of the reality of, of um, the byproducts of others' sins, um, of, of genetics that are sin-contaminated. They deal with the second law of thermodynamics, that stuff just breaks down. Those things are true. They're true. They're all causes of lameness, of, of outcastedness, of affliction. But there's one more answer to this intellectual and to this very emotional question. Why? And it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay? For the glory of God. That's also an answer. Even those whom I have afflicted. For the glory of God. And this begs another question here. Why would God afflict someone in such a way? Or how is God glorified when He afflicts someone? How is He glorified in people being lame? In people being cast out? In them being afflicted? And, and we might answer that differently. And we might answer that differently depending on whether or not that person is a part of the remnant. But for the lame, for the outcast, for the afflicted believer, part of the answer is this. You are given the honor. You're given the privilege. You're given a very unique and poignant privilege and honor of displaying the image of Christ. Get this. To such an extent that the watching world has no option but to notice you. The greater your lameness, the greater your outcastedness or your affliction, the more you're going to be seen. Because a normal person, in quotes, can just walk on by, go about his daily life and his business, and go completely unnoticed. But for you, it is virtually impossible for you to not be seen. How does that display Christ? Turn to Isaiah 53. How does that display Christ? Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So salvation, okay, the message. He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Listen, in order for people to not look at Him, to not see Him, they had to physically, intentionally cover their face or turn their head. For you, believer, that are called to this very difficult, grief-filled, pain-filled, sorrowful calling, you have been given the gift of magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ as a suffering servant. And each believer is called to a different task. Each one is called to display the glory of God differently. Some in courage, some in beauty, some in intelligence, some in creativity, some in relationship, some in, some in language, some in this and some in that, some in strength, and some in weakness. It's a hard calling. 
But it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Listen, what God's doing here in Micah 4, he's talking to his children and he's telling them their future. He's telling them their future. He's showing them the larger picture. Remember, you've got the Assyrian army at the doorstep. You've got Hezekiah weeping, laying this out before the Lord with Sennacherib, his, his, his note, his letter. And you've got Isaiah's prophecy. You've got Micah's prophecy. This is right here. And these people... They're experiencing and seeing death and destruction. And God is showing them their future. God's giving them hope here. Remember that. He's showing them the larger picture. He's confirming the truth that we sing in the hymn that, that just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of this life repay. One glimpse. One glimpse. God hasn't allowed you to suffer or caused you to suffer because He hates you. Quite the opposite is true. God actually cares for His children. He cares for you. He isn't ashamed of you. Parents, have you ever been ashamed of your kids when they start acting in such a way that you just want to do, oh... Or maybe we should invert it. Children, have you ever been ashamed of your parents when you're, oh my goodness, I can't believe that that's my father and they hide? We know about that, don't we? They co- we cover our faces in shame because of embarrassment and dishonor. Can you believe that God is not ashamed of you? He's not ashamed to call you His brethren. There's no shame from God towards His children. On the contrary, those of whom men are are the most ashamed, God, in a sense, loves more. How? Why? For in both a very real and a symbolic sense, these rejected, the dejected, the poor, the lonely, the outcast, the afflicted, the, the depressed, the lonely... The lame, they're all pictured and they're typified in this Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. That's how, that's why. Well, what about the king of this kingdom? We've looked at the citizenry. What about the royalty? In looking at the Lord who will reign over them in Mount Zion. The middle of verse 7. Let's look at him and let's look at at those um, with whom he he chose to make his nation. In considering the citizenry that he wants and considering this Lord who reigns, we learn something about this king. You know, as we've already said, this king is not doing what the Babylonians would do. He's not picking and choosing the best. He's not intentionally building his, his global governing body with, um, with, with the most obvious, the most prominent, the most intelligent. No, he's doing the opposite. He's, he's fulf- he, listen, he's building his global governing body with individuals who otherwise would not be allowed onto government property unless they were there for material support. No, some of them might even be arrested if they were to step foot onto government property. But this king, again, he's inverting our assumed order of things. He's turning it on its head. This king, he says, you know, the first, they're going to be last. The last are going to be first. This king says, unless you become like children, you'll no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. You know, it was the lame, it was the outcast, it was the afflicted 
who had no right to approach the altar. Remember, we mentioned that. We looked at it in Leviticus, or I looked at it in Leviticus. Yet, yet this king, he's, he's building his entire system of worship. He's building his, his approach to God using these very individuals. And, and the implication is that, that no longer are these going to cry, unclean, unclean. And they cover their faces because they're leprous. No longer is that going to be the case. No more are they going to they're going to slink away in shame. No longer are they going to hide because because of social stigma. They're they're not going to uh, they're not going to change their daily routines and schedules so that so that they don't make normal people uncomfortable. They're not going to do that anymore because this king's doing away with all that. This is a compassionate king. He is compassionate. Man looks on the outward appearance, but this king, he looks at the heart. He looks at your heart. What, what about this king? This king, he performs actions that no other individual can do. This language is antithetical to reality. I'm going to assemble the lame. Lame people don't come. Yet he assembles them. Outcasts are not a part of society. They're dispersed. They're rejected. They're ostracized. But no. No. He locates them. And he reincorporates them back into society. Those who were previously considered off-scouring. These are now revealed as what makes the nation strong. This king, well, he stands up for and he defends the weak and the helpless and the needy. How many times in Scripture do we have things about the orphans, about the widows, about the alien, about the foreigner? How many times are those things mentioned? Why? Because... Because they represent those within society who are without a support network. They're without a provider. They're without a protector. They're easily manipulated. They're abused. They're misused. They're they're oppressed. They're without community. And this king, this Lord, yes, even God himself, he says, I'm going to execute justice for the orphan, for the widow, for the needy. I'm going to show love for the alien. I'm going to give him food and clothing. That's who this king is. What about this king? He reverses the curse. Praise God. For, and we have an example of this. Because in the days of his flesh, what did Jesus do? You know what he did. He went about healing the lame. He, he cured the blind and the deaf. He, he exercised demons from those who were oppressed and afflicted by them. He threw them out. He restored to society those who were social outcasts, who lived in the tombs naked and screaming and bleeding. Gave them their right mind. He restored them to society. And I simply want to ask the question, If Jesus performed these miracles when His kingdom was merely being initiated, then to what extent shall He go when it comes in its fullness? Yeah. If it literally happened the first time, why wouldn't it literally happen a second? There's much mystery, yes, surrounding this. We don't fully understand it. We can't see it clearly. We're looking through a glass darkly. Uh, but but for this king, it's right that we don't fully upper, understand it because he's beyond our comprehension. But but Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. What does that include? It includes the physical as well as the spiritual. Jesus Christ, he reigns over all that is seen. And over all that is unseen. If he can and has conquered death. 
why wouldn't he also conquer life? What did Jesus say? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Pick up your pallet and go home. Authority over both realms. What else do we learn about this, this beautiful king? We've already mentioned it, but the Lord will reign. What kind of a king is it who doesn't rule or reign? Well, he's simply a puppet. He's simply a figurehead. Um, he's just a symbol. But while this citizenry here is made to, to be a strong nation, they aren't the head. The Lord is the head. God's government is not a democracy, folks. It's not even a republic. It's a monarchy. And God doesn't share His government or His glory. It's all His. Glory be to God. The Lord will reign. And simply by, by the language and the context and the, and the feel of this passage, we can gather and understand that, that the Lord here, He isn't uh, perpetuating this, this cycle of lameness, of outcastedness and afflictedness. No, He's not continuing to, inflict these, to afflict these people. No, the, the implication is that only under His reign will these things be made right. Only under His reign will the lame walk. Only under His rule will the outcast be, be restored. For, for God does not take away life. No, but He plans ways so that the banished ones can be brought to Him again. And only when the Lord has full dominion will His afflicted ones, will they now have comfort. This Lord, He's going to reign, but He's going to reign over them in Mount Zion. Now remember, this was, this was is and was a, a literal, historical, geographical location and nation state. There was a literal plowing done to Zion. And, and Jerusalem was literally reduced to a pile of rubble. Not one stone shall be left upon another, Christ said. Actual injustice was performed here so that, so that, um, so that, injust, uh, so that Jerusalem would grow, right? Jerusalem with violent injustice. Actual, literal blood was shed for the building of Zion. And in this literal place, in this literal Zion, this Jerusalem, Jesus said, he, and He commissioned them, to, to take the Word of God, to take it beginning at Jerusalem, going into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, but beginning from Jerusalem. Now, could this be metaphoric language over them in Mount Zion? Could it be speaking of, of a spiritual Zion? Could, could it, rather than, than a physical reality? Yeah, I think it could, and I think there certainly is a very spiritual aspect here that, that we could hammer with truth. But if I stop there, I don't think I'd do justice to the text. Because I have every reason, contextually, to also say that there will be a very literal fulfillment of this. There was a very literal fulfillment of the plowing of Zion, and I think that there's also going to be a very literal fulfillment of Christ reigning in Zion. Now, what's that going to look like? I don't know. I don't have a firm conviction on all that. And I, and I don't think... Uh, well, let me, just, let me just tell you what, what one pastor told me. And, and I thought it was hilarious. He jokingly said, you know, I'm a pan-millennialist. What do you mean? It'll all pan out. <laughs> and that's true. It'll all pan out, folks. Let's not get hung up on this. But one thing, I tell you what that we ought to get hung up on. And let's most assuredly get one thing right. And that's this. That the Lord who will reign is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. None other. He's the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And He is reigning. He will reign and He will continue to reign.
And this fact, brothers and sisters, this, this ought to be a very firm and solid conviction in each one of us that, that we can and that we should both unashamedly and boldly proclaim Jesus as Lord unto the point of our being made lame, unto the point where it costs us everything, even unto the point of death. We ought to proclaim it, sing into the grave. Jesus is Lord, though it cost us our lives. What then is the extent of this kingdom? Look at 7b. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Or from henceforth even forever. From within history unto eternity. This is the kingdom that has no end, folks. There's no limits or bounds placed to this kingdom, is there? No. None. Not even time can stop him. You know, perhaps that's the greatest obstacle that faces men. Time. I don't have time. Even if a man were to conquer and obtain the whole world and he dies, what of it? Eventually, time is going to catch up with us. Sin with time equals death. And if you refuse to listen, to experience life, reality around you. The Word of God also proclaims against you. Just read Genesis chapter 5. And He died. Go ahead and live 969 years. Time's going to catch up with you eventually. But when we speak of this King and this Kingdom... And the extent of his kingdom, perhaps the very the fastest way to talk about its extent is to talk about time and its relation to time. It goes from now on and forever. Forever. What Isaiah say? There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end whatsoever. Because on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Not the zeal of man. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. To eternity. Well, as we're, as we're nearing our, convic- our conclusion here, let's consider this final verse. Verse 8. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. As for you. And here's that phrase that, um, that, that answers that question which Micah's hearers were probably asking. Micah? Maybe you're asking it. So what? Look, I am facing an army in my backyard and you're telling me something that is going to happen in a hundred years or a thousand years. So what, Micah? I'm not going to be alive in a hundred years. I'm sure not going to be alive in a thousand years. What difference does this make to me? That doesn't do me any good. How does this prophecy of yours, how does it do anything to relieve my current sorrow? My current pain and suffering? Tell me what good this prophecy is, Micah. How's it going to help me? That is an actual very legitimate question. It's a sharp question. It's a very painful and poignant question. 
I'm sure there's, there's many answers that, that can touch on the applicability of God's Word. But I come back to again and again and again. And that is the Lord's faithfulness. To His veracity. His truthfulness. His ability to be depended upon. What did Micah say in verse 5? As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. As for us, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him, Job says. Micah says, as for you, tower of the flock, it will come. It will come. God is faithful. So, Lift up that hurting neck of yours. Open as open your eyes, even though you're blinded, and look to the heavens. Lift up your head. Put your focus upward and not downward. Instead of, instead of letting your, your lameness, your affliction, your, your outcastedness, your social dissatisfaction, instead of letting that define you, let God define you. Let God define you and your future. This lameness, this social outcastedness, this affliction, that is not your identity. That is not you. No. The world may define you as that way. They may categorize you in that fashion. But... They may give you that diagnosis. They may label you with those terms, but that's not how the Lord defines people. Your identity is defined only by your relationship to the King. That is who you are. You're either in His kingdom or not in His kingdom. You are either His subject or not His subject. His friend or His foe. You cannot have your head in the kingdom and your body under your own authority. You know, Satan still likes to propagate this Gnostic gospel that there's a differentiation. You can't have it that way. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're all in. You're all in. You you cannot be a Nicolaitan Christian. You just can't be it that way. See, that's named after a person and then that's named after Christ. You're a Christian... Or you're not a Christian. Such a notion is not only heretical, but it's an impossibility. Do you believe God? Or do you not believe God? Submit yourself to His rightful reign and rule. Submit yourself to Him. Place your identity in Him. And if you do believe then you have the Word of God here that says to you, it will come about. To you it will come. And if you, ha- if you do believe, then you have the promise that, that the Son of God says to you that you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe. Listen to this. Your life as a believer... Your life is inextricably tied to the rule and reign of Christ. From now on and forever, He's going to reign. If you're His subject, He's your King forever. Forever. If your life is hid with Christ, you're going to enjoy Him eternally. 
eternally. Well, here's something else that we need to remember about the book of Micah. And that's not excluding this this passage today. While I certainly do believe that there is a vein in which you and I, as Gentiles, um, that, that we do appropriate these truths. Within the immediate context, however, I think this passage is speaking of Israel. And I looked at this a lot and tried to decipher it, balance it. Um, But I think it's speaking of Israel. And I don't think we can ignore that because it says, Heal of the daughter of Zion, kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. I think it's speaking of Israel as as being lamed from war, as being spiritually unable, unable. I think it's speaking of Israel as being displaced as refugees, as being spiritually separated from God. I think it's speaking of Israel as being afflicted as prisoners of war, as as spiritually tortured. And I think Israel's kingship was removed or being removed because Israel rejected God as their king. And we're going to see that further down in the following verses. But, but what about this former dominion here? What's that talking about? Is that, is that Solomon's reign? Is it David's reign? Is it speaking back even further to, to the reign of, of, of Adam righteously? Uh, and I, Frankly, I'm going to leave that for you to decide. Um, but really, regardless... Regardless of that, all three of these, it points to he who was and who is to come, that is the King Jesus. Okay? The latter dominion of this kingdom is greater than the former. And he did come and he's going to come again. And and whatever whatever Israel's role is, it is not something that supplants the gospel. Okay? Nothing is going to supplant the supreeminence of the gospel. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think it magnifies the gospel. More so. Because, because um, those who have received the, the role of, of, of being lame, of being afflicted, of being outcast, you, like Jacob, like Israel, you're in a unique position to, to magnify the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and isn't that kind of the point here? That if this passage is speaking of, of collective Israel, for if you read the King James, it has her that halteth, her that is driven out, that I have afflicted. It's, it's, a, like a, it's, a, it's a weird, it's feminine, neuter, generic, collective type language. Um, but if it's speaking collectively rather than individually, uh, well, really, either way though, the emphasis is upon the Lord. And upon his rule and his reign. And let's be honest with ourselves here. How often is it that the Lord has to afflict us? To put us outside of our comfort zone. How often is it that he has to cut our leg a little bit. Where we aren't as able as we thought we were. In order to break us. This word affliction. It has a connotation of breaking. I have afflicted. Well, let's be honest there. Sometimes this is done symbolically. Sometimes it's done metaphorically. And sometimes it's done very literally. And I think he has done this to to national Israel. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 11. Verse 8, it says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure 
is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? You see how it magnifies the gospel? One more passage, and then we'll close. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. In Jesus' first coming, He read from this passage. And He says, Today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. But you know where He stopped? To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's where he stopped. You know, and they marveled and they wondered. Like, is this not the carpenter's son? So here's this identity thing again. But he continued teaching. He continued preaching. And you know what? They wanted to throw him off a cliff. They pushed him out of town. And are saying, he's different from us. Let's kill him. However, when the Jews finally do accept Jesus as the Christ, when they finally do turn to him, then, let's see here, verse 4, Isaiah 61, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Or as Micah says, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Even so, come Lord Jesus.